George Orwell's book, 1984, in which a brainwashed working class, bred to serve the elite, were kept in ignorance by newspeak and doublethink, is a prediction of what is happening now. Politically correct newspeak is disseminated by biased, agenda-driven media and public educational institutions, battering their deceitful techniques after the communist process of brainwashing. To protect ourselves from the influences of the world, we have been cautioned not to love the world, namely, the lustful, sensual outlook on life that has totally abandoned God, that has blatantly pursued self-glorification and self-interest, ambitiously excelling at the expense of others. Today, Dr. Bill Petrie will discuss God's plan on how a Christian can defeat this evil system of societal brainwashing. Former New York Senator, Democratic presidential candidate, and First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton said years ago that the nonfiction book 1984, which was written in 1949 by George Orwell, was the book that had the greatest influence on her. This book was a type of prophecy of what the elitists see as their utopian world of the future. Mrs. Clinton's worldview fits the globalist's goal for the common masses, to serve the elites in a worshipped, environmentally friendly world with a drastically reduced population. It does not look very good for the average person of the world if the prophecy of this book were to come true. The unsettling book was later made into a very disturbing movie, and I do not recommend that you go see it. Here's a quote from that movie. The party, i.e. the government, claimed, of course, to have liberated the proles, the common workers, from bondage. In reality, very little was known about the proles, who are the common workers. It was not necessary to know much, so long as they continued to work and breed, their other activities were without importance. Left to themselves, like cattle turned loose upon the plains of Argentina, they had reverted to a style of life that appeared to be unnatural to them, a sort of ancestral pattern. They were born. They grew up in the gutters. They went to work at twelve. They passed through a brief blossoming period of beauty and sexual desire. They married at 20. They were middle-aged at 30. And they died, for the most part, at 60. Heavy physical work, the care of home and children, petty quarrels with neighbors, movies, football, beer, and above all, gambling filled up the horizon of their minds. To keep them in control was not difficult. End of quote. This is the description of a brainwashed society following the planned mind control of the working class populace. The working class was bred to serve the wealthy and politically powerful elite of society. I would like to go over some points in the book 
to bring out some principles. And one part of the story is hate week begins, the war with Eurasia suddenly stops and a war with East Asia starts. This meant a lot of work for the main character, Winston Smith, who was a party member. His character was fashioned after Winston Churchill and the story does take place in a socialist England. Nevertheless, Winston finds time to read the party book entitled The Book, which has three chapters. War is peace, ignorance is strength, and freedom is slavery, which were also the main phrases of the party. You can see some similarities and parallels to society today. In another part of the story, Winston has doubts about the benevolence of the party and begins to openly question things. He is tortured by his friend O'Brien, also a party member. O'Brien aims to teach Winston the technique of doublethink, which he does by inflicting pain in ever-increasing intensity. He reminds Winston that he wrote in his diary the sentence, freedom is the freedom to say two plus two makes four. O'Brien holds up four fingers of his left hand and asks Winston how many there are. Winston answers four a couple of times, and each time the pain increases. This is not done to make Winston lie, but to make him really see five fingers instead of four. At the end of the session, under the heavy influence of drugs and agony, Winston really sees five fingers in his mind. The brainwashing is successful, but only temporarily as the story goes. The goal of the party was to convince through various methods, sometimes painful, sometimes pleasant, that the truth is what the party says the truth is. The powers behind the scenes, called Big Brother, know that to make the truth of the party more palatable, the meaning of existing terms must be changed. Keep in mind that this is all in the book 1984, and I do not know whether it was a guideline to how to continue with society in that direction or a warning that it was headed that way. Orwell got a lot of his information in what he saw happening during World War II in Nazi Germany, and later in Communist China. I would like to interject into the story that it is interesting that the Holy Roman Catholic Church did the same thing in the 4th century BC when it renamed the pagan orgiastic festival of, of Saturnalia, December 17th through the 24th, and the winter solstice ritual of Bromalia, meaning birthday of the sun, December 25th, Christmas. It was also the same when they demanded that Christians observe the pagan sun-worshipping spring festival of the goddess Ishtar, or Easter, while banning the observance of Passover with a threat of death. Thus, the pagan festivals of Christmas and Easter 
are kept in mainstream professing Christian homes today. The brainwashing over the many centuries was successful in that light to bring those pagans who began at the time of Constantine to move from paganism to what he calls Christianity, which holds the same general pagan beliefs and the same holidays just renamed. It is a parallel to Orwell's novel of 1949. There are some new terms in this novel that express induced trends in society today. The two terms are news speak and doublethink. They even have been combined to the term doublespeak. Doublethink is a term of manipulation of the mind. Generally, one could say that doublethink makes people accept contradictions and believe that the party is the only institution that distinguishes between right and wrong. This manipulation is mainly done by the minitru, which in the book is short for Ministry of Truth, where Winston Smith works. When a person well-grounded in doublethink recognizes a contradiction or a lie of the party, then the person thinks that he is remembering a false act. With the help of the minitru, it is not only possible to change written facts, but also facts remembered by the people, providing complete control of the country and its citizenry. Just prior to Orwell's writing of his book, the Nazis had already implemented the faking of history when they told the people the lie that German knights believed in the principles of National Socialism, thereby giving it credibility. Hitler is quoted as having said something to the effect of, tell a lie often enough and it is eventually perceived as truth. There is one other term that I would like to mention, and that is newspeak. It was the official language of Oceania, the country in which the book took place, which represented Great Britain. It was devised to meet ideological needs of the English socialism that he called Ingsoc in the book. In the year 1984, there is nobody who really uses newspeak in speech or writing. Only the leading, only the leading articles are written in this language. However, it is generally assumed that in the year 2050, newspeak would supersede oldspeak or common English. The purpose of newspeak is not only to provide a medium of expression for the worldview and mental habits proper to devotees of Ingsoc or English socialism, but also to make all other methods of thought impossible. Another reason for developing newspeak is to make old books, those written before the era of the party, unreadable. With newspeak, doublethink would be even easier. Its vocabulary is so constructed as to give exact 
an often very subtle expression to every meaning that a party member could properly wish to express while excluding all other meanings in the possibility of arriving at them by indirect methods. This is done partly by the invention of new words, but chiefly by eliminating undesirable words. We see this process today in what we call political correctness. Examples of this, abortion is called free choice. Sodomy is called gay. Euthanasia is called dying with dignity. Orwell's prophecy, if it was that, is coming true. He saw it happen in Nazi Germany, and that was a pattern for what is happening today. He again saw it happen under Mao Zedong in communist China. With our language being changed to the point that we almost do not recognize some of the words or phrases, we begin to see a change in shift in thought. The prophet Jeremiah described the blatant sins of ancient Israel and Judah shot through and through with wickedness at the time that he wrote. He pointed out their universal adultery, referring to their spiritual adultery of idol, idol, idolatry, which led to gross immoralities. The citizens of the nation, especially the politicians, were deceitful and double-crossing community. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 8, record this. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they are all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. And like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. They are not valiant for the truth on the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, says the Lord. Everyone take heed to his neighbor, and do not trust any brother, for every brother will utter, utterly supplant, and every neighbor will walk with slanderers. Everyone will deceive his neighbor, and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. Your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refuse to know me, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and try them. For how shall I deal with the daughter of my people? Their tongue is an arrow shot out. It speaks deceit. One speaks peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in his heart he lies in wait. Verse 3 gives a comparison between the military bow and the tongue. The bow is the tongue, the arrow is the lie. Jeremiah says that the wicked men of Judah bend their tongues to be their war bows to shoot lies. It was not against the enemy only, however. 
it consisted of a great deal of what we might call friendly fire directed at their fellow citizens. Just as men of past eras readied their bows before a battle, flexing and planning, so also people of a wicked society purposefully get their lying words ready to do harm as the arrows shot from the military bow. By way of analogy, the point is that they rule deceitfully rather than faithfully in the land of their people. In a state of such complete lawlessness, mutual confidence wanes and suspicion takes its place. Nobody trusts anyone, especially not the politicians. Tirelessly, the people went from one sin to another, fearless in their enthusiasm for lying. We see this today in television commercials with an unlimited number of lies just within one commercial. It is portrayed as being perfectly acceptable or humorous. In Israel and Judah, they had completely abandoned moral and social standards. Mutual trust had vanished, resulting in the breakdown of the inner solidarity of the nation. It was collapsing from within, much the same as is happening to the United States today. Judah was suffocating in deceit. All this stemmed from willful enmity against and ignorance of God. They cared neither to know him nor to recognize him. The Apostle Paul wrote an epistle to the body of Christ in Rome about this same thing. He gives as his reason the perverted practices of the worldly Gentiles for the purpose of convincing the Gentile believers in Rome to resist and overcome their previous lifestyles. Those members in Rome were Gentiles as well, having come out of a Gentile world, but they were struggling to put that behind them. They, like us today, had been and were being brainwashed by the society in which they lived. However, as the called of God, they had to continue to resist that influence with all their being. Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32 state this, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, 
disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And approving those who practice such sins, as I have read, they share the responsibility and the penalty connected with this wickedness. Corrupt leaders for personal gain encourage sin by passing laws that go directly against God's law. They promote decadence in society on a widespread scale by their own immoral and deceitful activities. In this society today, the first thing people think of with regard to politicians is that they are liars. Because of the universal distrust of politicians, most people have the question lurking in the back of their mind, what are they up to behind the scenes? Many people cope with this distasteful thought by blinding themselves and blocking their ears from any information that may answer that question. As the old humanly reasoned adage goes, ignorance is bliss. That is one of the ways that they get away with it because people do not want to face the truth of what is going on. I fear that people are also this way when it comes to immoral and treasonous propaganda crammed down our throats by the written, listened to, and viewed media. In other words, the steady diet of misinformation that the public has fed in newspapers magazines, and books, what we hear on the radio, and what we see on television. Also, what educators in public schools, colleges, and universities take easily programmable minds and feed them politically correct doublespeak, the party line. Why, in just the last few days, we've seen the creation of a department of disinformation in the United States. They have encouraged such perverse immorality that universities have become well known for their drunken orgies and other perversions. For members of the body of Christ, this idea that ignorance is bliss is especially dangerous. It leads to letting down one's guard, maintaining biases and prejudices, and developing new ones. It leads to being brainwashed by the enemies of God, to believing, or at least accepting, the lies. We see this happening all throughout Christendom. Ignorance was bliss, and they did not want to know about the detail of the doctrines that the Apostle Paul was communicating. Thus, 
many have fallen away from the truths that have been communicated to the body of Christ through the Apostle Paul, mixing together law and grace, Israel and the body of Christ, and making the Bible a hopeless mess of contradictory, confusing statements. Most of you would probably deny that you have been and are being brainwashed against your will. This is a wake-up call. Sadly, we are to some extent a product of this society and therefore have the effects of being brainwashed by this society. This is one of the things against which we fight. And Satan, of course, is the instigator behind it all. However, man must face his own responsibility, and certainly the society and its leaders must and will face the judgment of what they have allowed. Predators brainwash others for any number of reasons, for power, for money, for self-validation, for self-gratification, for control, and for misguided convictions that society needs to be led like sheep rather than properly nurtured, educated, and cared for. Other terms used to refer to brainwashing are thought reform, coercive persuasion, mind control, indoctrination, and encoding, and political correctness. This is not a podcast about conspiracies, whether or not you believe in conspiracies. Satan is the master conspirator, and there is at least his conspiracy going on. This is about being brainwashed and allowing someone or something else to take control of part of your mind. Sometimes it is through repetition. Sometimes it is through enticements. What then is brainwashing? The term brainwashing was first used in 1951 by the news correspondent Hunter to describe the con conversion process that American POWs had undergone in Chinese prison camps during the Korean War. He translated the term from Chinese concept of the si nao wash brain. Mao Zedong used the term susu hisong tao shang or thought struggle as early as 1929 to denote what we later commonly refer to as mind control, thought reform, or thought control. According to the World Book Dictionary, Brainwashing is a process of systematically, forcibly, and intensively indoctrinating a person to destroy or weaken his beliefs and ideas so that he becomes willing to accept different or opposite beliefs or ideas. One of the major tools for this, as far as selling a product goes, is advertising. The commercials run over and over, over and over and over and over again. Brainwashing, mind control, deprogramming, 
Are these just words, or do they represent frighteningly real activities that strike at our most basic freedoms? The leaders know how to control people. They must create a society for them whereby they can be kept busy and entertained by encouraging the basest of human desires in the continuing of society. They satisfy the natural enmity against God and the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Give the people what they want up to a point, but remain in control of them by way of popular propaganda. Tell the people what they want to hear with the use of subtle guiding deceptions. This is the case of the current United States educational system. We change our regular history into things like critical race theory, the 1611 Project, and such like things. We force individuals at a very young age to accept that it's okay to change pronouns, that you can identify with whatever group you want to identify with, and we encourage such behavior. We allow children as young as five or six to make life-changing decisions at a time when they really don't even know what the decisions they're making are all about. The problem is not contained within the confines of this world. Even human beings who are called by God are susceptible to all this in this world. In the book of 1 John, chapter 2, the Apostle John encourages citizens of Israel about the strength of their spiritual state. He explains what they can do because they are strong in the spirit, have truly known God and what he stands for, and they have the knowledge and understanding that God has placed in them, and they have overcome the wicked one. In verses 15 through 17, John begins a negative exhortation. Having told them what they are to do, he here reminds them of something that they are to avoid. Do not love the world. As they are, as they are to love God and keep his commandments, just as we in this dispensation are to love the brothers, so like them... We are not to love the world or the things that are in the world. This is something that follows quite logically and inevitably from what John has already been saying. This negative admonition is vitally important. Every bit as important as the positive admonition that he gave earlier in this chapter. 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 through 17 state this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is, it, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides for the eon. Because we all engage in self-defense, 
Part of the danger is to approach these words and interpret them in such a way is to make us all right and probably condemn other people while we are doing it. This is an element of self-righteousness of which we must be very careful. We say that the world is not affecting us, but it is affecting everyone else around us. We cannot have that attitude since we are right in there with everyone else. We are all experts at rationalizing our sins and explaining away what we do. It is interesting to hear how people often quote these verses, fondly imagining that they are perfectly all right themselves with regard to these words. Yet they often display in their lives that they have certainly completely misunderstood one of the main emphasis of this particular restriction. Sometimes we hear people talking excitedly about world, worldliness and denouncing it, and we realize immediately that they have taken only one little section and have completely ignored the remainder. I hope that we will all, after this podcast, not ignore the remainder of it, but recognize all of that influence that is coming from the world. We must honestly face that worldliness is and, and search and examine ourselves in order to know truth and exactly what it really is. We must discover where we are and where we stand. The word worldliness examines us down to the very depths of our being because it affects every last person in the body of Christ. First, let us ask what John means. What is the world in this case? We know that he is not referring to creation. He is not thinking of the mountains and the valleys and the rivers. He does not mean the physical world in that sense, neither is it referring to the life of the world in general. John is not referring to family relationships. It does not mean engaging in peaceful, honest business or profession or all the things basically essential to life. It does not indicate government and authorities and powers. However, it is referring to those within such organizations who try to move forward with their globalist agenda. What then does the world signify? Biblically, the essence of the meaning is the organization, the mind, and the outlook of mankind as it ignores God. It does not recognize him, and it lives a life independent of him, a life that is based upon this world and this life only. It means the typical life that is being lived by the average person today, who has no thought of God, but thinks only of this world and life, who thinks in terms of time, and is governed by certain instincts and desires promoted by this world. It is the whole outlook on life 
that is exclusive of God. Second, what are the characteristics of this kind of life? John answers that question in verse 16. But first he says in John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is it, it but is of the world. Lust means an inordinate affection or desire. The abuse of something that is naturally and perfectly right and legitimate in and of itself, such as drinking wine to drunkenness, or sexual relations within marriage is acceptable, but adulterous relationships would be lost. Paul puts this in clear terms to the Corinthians when he tells us to use this world and not abuse it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 31, to abuse it is to be guilty of lust. Lust, in other words, means that instead of controlling our desires and using them as we ought to, we are controlled by them. They master us, and they control us. There are certain desires in us that are perfectly legitimate and have been given by God. They are good, unless we pervert those desires. However, if we are governed and controlled by them, and our whole outlook on life is circumscribed by these things, then we are guilty of lust. That is the meaning of the word. The Apostle John mentions the lust of the flesh in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. He is talking about lust in the sense that it arises from and appertains to nature, that is, belonging to our physical bodies. This is his definition of sensuality. He is, he is talking about the kind of person who lives only for sensual gratification. That is not only sex, but it is also gluttony and drunkenness and all kinds of sexual perversions. It includes the kind of man or woman who lives to eat, who have a lust for food, people whose whole outlook seems to be entirely defined by their interest in food and drink. The expert knowledge they have on drink means that they have made it too much a part of their life. Often these are people who delight to talk about it, and call themselves connoisseurs and experts in tastes and flavors, living for eating and drinking. I'm not talking about a basic education of these things. I'm talking about the obsession of it. The many magazines on the different subjects certainly show an obsession with these things that titillate the senses. Nevertheless, the hunger instinct is perfectly legitimate. We must eat to live. 
But if we live to eat, we are guilty of the lust of the flesh. It is the same with drinking. If it, it is our controlling and main interest in life, it is a lust. Thus, the same also applies to sex. We have only to look at the newspapers and magazines, and we see the whole thing shouting and blaring at us. The Western world seems to be full of it. The clever, subtle businessmen who produce the advertisements know exactly what appeals to the public palate. They put these things always in the forefront, and they all belong to this lust of the flesh, the abuse of certain natural instincts and desires that are part of human nature and life. John warns us not to love that, not to be guilty of that, and not to be controlled by that sort of thing. It has nothing to do with this godly life. It is the very antithesis of it. Let us move on to the lust of the eyes mentioned in 1 John 2.16. The best way of defining this is to say that it describes the kind of man or woman who lives according to false values. They judge by appearances and by outward show, which, of course, often leads to the lust of the flesh. It is through the eyes that sin so often arises. It is what we see and what the world makes us see that so often causes us to sin. Briefly, it no doubt includes sin when it is in the intellectual stage. Jesus Christ put it this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. But I say to you that whosoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The lust of the eyes includes that it is a kind of offensive looking, sin in the intellect, the toying and playing with it in the imagination and thought, but it does not stop at that. The lust of the eyes also means a kind of vanity that delights in spectacle and splendor, in an appearance, in anything that appeals to the eyes. The world is full of this kind of thing. Great pomp and show, the mere appearance giving an impression. In fact, you could say that it is the banner of the world, merely an appearance and giving an impression. This also pleases the people whose main interest in life is in their personal appearance. There are people who live just for their own personal appearance and the impression that it makes. It is amazing the time, energy, and enthusiasm that go into all this. Look at the number of people that are always in the mall up to the moment it closes. The internet is not evil, but it thrives on this very thing. Consider the talking and writing about clothing fashions. There are there are innumerable magazines, newspaper, and television shows to promote such things. It is being shouted at us everywhere, the lust of the eyes, how pathetic it is that human beings, endowed with the things which God has given, can live for things like this outlook of showiness and appearance. The next step that the Apostle John introduces in 1 John 2.16 is what he calls the pride of life. The best way to define this 
is to call it self-glorification, a very subtle thing. This is something that we can divide into two sections. It includes ambition and it includes contempt of others. The pride of life indicates a pride in oneself, generally at the expense of someone else, glorying in something that is true of oneself in this life and world. Let us analyze this for a moment. Pride in your family, that you have a particular name, or that there is particular type of blood in your veins. Pride in your industry, pride in your social status, in influence, the people we know, our acquaintances. People love this sort of thing. They are eager to get into certain circles, to belong to a certain club, and that has nothing to do with God and his honor and his glory. It is amazing how much men and women give thought to this kind of thing, how much money they spend on it, how much time and energy, the way they suffer, the jealousy and envy that arise are all part of the pride of life. Go to a beach someday, and you may possibly see what they call a bikini contest. This is beautiful young women trying to dress as scantily as they can dress so that one can be deemed the best looking at the expense of all the others. But all of them on the stage are significantly better than you. This is the pride of life. This is self-gratification. This is self-glorying. Then there is the question of wealth and the way people pride themselves on their wealth and material possessions. The pride of life shows itself in our feeling about the school to which we went, a little better than somebody else's school, the college that we attend, or the university to which we belong. The world encourages the natural human tendency of the pride of life to flourish and even makes money from it. Look at all the mascot things that the college students and others buy, such as the cups and the jerseys and the t-shirts. There is a sense of superiority and a despising of others, feeling somewhat sorry for others. The same thing goes for the national sports. Sports are not necessarily wrong in and of themselves, but the marketing of them surely has taken it to the extreme. Surely it has taken it to such an extreme that our, our thinking becomes skewed and we place a false importance upon it. I've been going into these things because this is the kind of thing that creeps into the life of Christians. Sadly, this is the type of thing that we sometimes observe in Christian circles. These are the standards by which humanity judges each other rather than judging us on our spiritual health. With pride and knowledge and learning, ability and culture, man boasts of his brain, his knowledge and his understanding of his intellect. It is continually striving for worldly honors. It is part of the pride of life, 
this ambition to get on and succeed, to be greater than everyone else. This idea of self-glorification in some shape or form permeates society. Are we being brainwashed? Yes. Every one of us is being affected by these things that are promoted by the world. All this is what the Apostle John meant by do not love the world or the things in the world. Why should we not love the world and the things that are in the world? The Apostle John puts it like this. Do not obey this commandment means a denial of our love to God and of our knowledge of him. In 1 John 2.15, John says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He is saying that loving these other things is incompatible with loving God. We cannot serve God and material things. We cannot love God and the world at the same time. The Apostle James, I shouldn't say the Apostle, James, the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, writes in James chapter 4, verse 4, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That is a powerful statement that should send shivers up our spines when we look at it in this light. It is in utter denial of what we claim to believe. Another reason is that love of the world and the things of the world is a denial of the life that is in us. We already read in 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The word of indicates that it is not derived from, it does not originate in the Father. Christians are people who have in them the life of Christ, Christ dwelling in them. Therefore, if we as Christians claim that Christ is dwelling in us, we cannot be guilty of loving the things that arise from the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Look at Jesus Christ. He was never guilty of those sins of the flesh. He did not believe in showiness and conceited appearance. Rather, he was meek and humble. He was someone who was the very antithesis of all the loudness and vulgarity of the world and its delights in the appearance and mere show. Remember what Christ taught? Blessed are the meek, the very opposite of the so-called worldly person. Blessed are the poor in spirit, not those who are proud, arrogant, and ambitious, who look down upon others because of certain things. Christ taught that we should feel that we are unworthy and inadequate of and by ourselves to be called by God. In the world, the great Lord it over others. It should not be so in his church, and it will not be so in his kingdom. 
Jesus is interested in and concerned about all human beings, including tax collectors and sinners. He does not look at their clothing, their birth, ancestry, or possessions. He does not look at their wealth, their gender, or their race. The Apostle Paul put it like this. In 2 Corinthians 5.16, he states, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. And in Galatians 3.28, the Apostle Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That, again, is an opposite viewpoint of what the world holds. All these factors are demolished. The heart and mind of everyone is what matters. In other words, Christians have an entirely different conception of all those things from the man or woman of the world. The wealth in which we are interested is the wealth of the riches of glory. The knowledge to which we aspire is not human knowledge, but the knowledge of God. <clears throat> the associations of which we are proud are not those found in elite circles. They are the people of God, the body of Christ, the saints. However humble we may be working to be, the honor that we crave is not the honor of a great name among men, but the honor of being known of God. The Apostle Paul told the Galatians in chapter 6 and verse 14 of that epistle, But God forbids that I should boast except in the cross of Christ, of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We have no spiritual connection to the world at all. God forbid that we should boast of anything, but that not our birth, not our appearance, our knowledge, our understanding, our wealth, our status, nothing. Another reason given by the Apostle John for not loving the world is that we, that if we love the world, it means we do not truly understand the great gospel of salvation. As we read earlier, John says in 1 John 2.17, And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who, will, who does the will of God abides for the eon. What he means is this. If we still love the world and the things that are in it, then we have never understood the principle of sin. We can see that is all that belongs to the world is passing away. All these things are disappearing. They are dying. We may be proud of our personal appearance, but we will soon be old and haggard. We will be dying, and then we will have nothing of which to boast. It is all passing. Wealth, riches, learning, knowledge, social status, all these things are vanishing. We must do the will of God and not be concerned about our own desires other than to resist them and control them. 
If we do that, we will abide for the eon. We will be building up a firm foundation for a building that will be tried and tested as by fire. Succumbing to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life manifests itself as works of the flesh, many of which Paul listed in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. When we look at the list of the works of the flesh, written almost 2,000 years ago, we are struck by how accurately our apostle, the apostle to the church of this present dispensation, the apostle Paul, described the present society in which we find ourselves treading water and sometimes even drowning. How many of these wicked traits do we recognize as common themes today? that are promoted in business through advertising on college campuses, by immoral professors, at parties of debauchery, and other various forms of entertainment, such as movie making or television or magazines. We see this life of dissipation, of dissipation promoted and portrayed by such vehicles as music, magazines, novels, television shows, and movies. We live in a society gone mad, where insanity is the norm. Paul labels the subject matter of much of what is encouraged by these conduits of influence as works of the flesh, actions of uncontrolled, corrupt, humanity. Galatians 5 verses 19 through 21 state this. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Practicing those things includes fantasizing about them. Here's a very brief description of each. Adultery, immoral sexual intercourse or relationships with a married person. Fornication, sexual immorality. This is a broader term than adultery. It refers to an immoral sexual intercourse or relationships between single or unmarried persons, yet often signifying adultery also. Uncleanness. Impurity. It originally meant the state of being dirty, but later developed ethical overtones, referring to a person who is either morally or ceremonially unclean. Paul uses it almost exclusively of moral impurity and alludes to unnatural vices. What is the opposite of purity? Unnatural practices. These would include homosexuality lesbianism, and bestiality. Lewdness. This is debauchery, 
It is an open and reckless contempt of modesty and de decency, including all partial or complete public nudity, idolatry, a worshiping of the creature rather than the creator. It is the worshiping of idols, attending pagan festivals, partaking in anything that has to do with non-Christian religious practices. Spiritual idolatry is giving more of one's time and attention to something in the place of God. Sorcery. This comes from the Greek word pharmakia, referring to a drug or poison, from which the word pharmacy comes today. All spells and enchantments used drug. As a drug, sorcery might be either the means of removing an evil or inflicting one. Spells and incantations sometimes were used for the restoration of health, and others for the destruction of an enemy. Basically, it is a secret tampering with, and at times, a worship of the powers of evil. The following works of the flesh includes much of what would today be called social offenses, hatred or enmities, loathings and hostilities, directly opposite of brotherly love and kindness, contentions or discord, the natural outcome of hatred. When hatred proceeds to open actions, the result is altercations, clashes, lawsuits, and disputes in general, jealousies, envies, or emulations, strife to excel at the expense of another, lowering, lowering others to set up oneself, unholy zeal, fervently adopting a bad cause or supporting a good one by cruel means. When zeal or anger originate from selfish motives and hurt pride, they are evil and harm others. In its general meaning, it can indicate both good and bad qualities. Paul uses it to direct us towards noticing and recognizing bad qualities. Outbursts of wrath. This is fits of rage, turbulent passions, temper tantrums, losing control of one's mind. This is a natural result of jealousies. Selfish ambitions, rivalry, intrigues, disputations, or strife about words. Its basic meaning is a selfish, aggrandizing approach to work dissensions. Generally, a situation in which people are divided and feuds flourish, divisions into separate factions or parties, whether in the church or the civil state, being disloyal to individuals creating dissension, heresies, this is propaganda, lies, deceptions, the separation from fellowship of other believers because someone believes a little different. Envy, a wrong passion, very hard to cure because it leads to deep bitterness. It is so closely related to jealousy that it is sometimes hard to see the difference between them, except for the fact that envy 
is always bad, and jealousy is sometimes good. Murders, the destruction of human life. Since he who hates his brother in his heart is ready to take away his life, he is called a murderer. This set of words, beginning with hatred, shows the flesh to be responsible for the breakdown in interpersonal relationships seen in all levels of society. Here are the last two. Drunkenness. Taking more wine or any kind of alcohol than is necessary for health. Whenever it makes a person unfit for public, domestic, or spiritual duties. Revelries, lewd parties, carousing, and listening to obscene music. The works of the flesh include offenses against God as well as against us and our neighbors. This is a very strong and solemn warning that those who habitually practice such evil things will never inherit God's kingdom. The worldly society encourages and promotes such evil directly in defiance of what God tells us through the Apostle John. Do not love the world or the things in the world. The world thumbs its nose at God and proceeds to promote evil with all of its might and enthusiasm. To recognize that we are being brainwashed with evil from Satan and the world, we must understand what evil is and how it works. Basically, evil is the undesirable perversion of good. For example, the perversion of love is hatred. The love that the world has manifests itself in hatred, damaging ways. Evil in scripture consistently appears in contrast to good. The Apostle Paul contrasts evil and good in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21, which we just read, of the evil works of the flesh, which immediately proceed and contrast the good fruit of the Spirit. <clears throat> but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such... There is no law. The perversion of joy is misery. The perversion of peace is war. The perversion of long-suffering is impatience. Of kindness, cruelty. Of goodness, wickedness. Of faithfulness, untrustworthiness. Of gentleness, harshness. And finally, the perversion of self-control is self-indulgence. Now we begin to see the contrasting opposition between the world and the body of Christ, and the contrasting enmity between sinful human beings and those whom God has declared righteous. In Genesis 2.9, the first mention of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil exposes the great divide of good and evil. On the one hand is the source of all goodness, the eternally good God who created all things very good. As Genesis chapter 1, verse 31 tells us, On the other hand, is anybody or anything opposed to God's perfect nature, activity, and plans? Adam and Eve 
embraced the opposition party when they disobeyed God and then came to know good and evil. The whole story of mankind in relation to its creator continues to develop through history as an opposition between good and evil, with people loving evil rather than good. Listen to this very stinging indictment of wicked human leaders, educators, politicians, and judgments. Psalm 52 verses 1 through 4 state, Why do you boast in evil, almighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. Selah. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. These are they who themselves call good evil and evil good. They encourage and promote sin by their own perverse examples and by the good laws they ignore and the evil laws they pass. All humans are susceptible to propaganda and brainwashing to accept the spinning of the world's lies as truth. Isaiah, Isaiah warns us in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, the following, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We know that God inspired his prophets to call on his people to hate evil and love good. Hebrews 5.14 describes the mature as those who have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. This is something that takes hard work. It takes a great deal of effort to understand the difference and to distinguish between good and evil. It is not something that comes naturally to the fleshly mind. We have to work with the help of God's Spirit to recognize that we are being brainwashed with a flood of evil enticements in a concerted effort to reshape our minds to accept, to accept such things as homosexuality, abortion, infanticide, suicide, euthanasia, undeclared wars, fetal tissue harvesting, cannibalism, feminism, vegetarianism, political correctness, extreme environmentalism, pharmaceutical drug abuse, legalization of prostitution, the mind-bending drug abuse for social reasons, acceptance of illegal immigration, consistent overspending and overtaxing, and the gross misuse of political power. For several decades, the citizens of the United States have been brainwashed and manipulated into voting for either of two very wicked political parties, the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. It will not be long before we can drop that Republican and Democrat because those parties are neither. Also, our children are being targeted for brainwashing from the time they are born. According to an article by Jerome Douglas published December 8th in 2006 on Newstarget.com entitled, Corporations are bombarding children with ads that boost obesity and poor nutrition. The age groups 
and I'm quoting this, the age group that include young children to adolescents witnessed so many advertisements that medical experts now fear for their health. Reports show that 40,000 ads each year from television alone may be boosting obesity, poor nutrition, cigarette use, and alcohol consumption among U.S. youth. And what is known as the advertising industry is cradle-to-grave marketing. Many companies start targeted advertising when children are infants to ensure that children grow up with certain acceptable advertising and branding ideas and carry those impressions with them throughout their lives. The McDonald's Corporation was very successful at this when it marketed their Happy Meals geared at children. Their thinking was if we can win a child when they are young, we will have them as an adult. We are indeed being brainwashed with a flood of evil inducements and a rigorous effort to reshape our minds to accept the universal promotion of things that discredit any Bible-based Christianity. The prophet Jeremiah says that God sets his face against evil and evildoers. God is against those who reject and ignore his inspired written word. In this light, the Bible most often distinguishes evil, not in isolation, but rather in relation to good, that is, to God. God's goodness is primary. Evil opposes his goodness. That opposition best expresses the nature of evil. It is not a matter of evil being passive. Quite the contrary. Evil is in direct defiance of God. It is anti-God. It is anti-Christ. The Bible portrays this opposition of evil to good through descriptions of darkness and light. From the very beginning, when God spoke the light into existence, saw that the light was good and separated the light from the darkness, the light became associated with God, good with God himself. Darkness, by contrast, works as the opposite of light and goodness, most often picturing a world of evil, alienated from God. Job 3.22 speaks of evildoers futilely attempting to hide from God in dark places and deep shadows. Into the darkness of this world came the light of Jesus Christ. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. The shining light in the darkness gives a picture not just of original creation, not just of Christ's coming, but also of each individual's redemption from the evil of sin and death. Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, For you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The inoculation against the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is to put on Christ, put on the armor of light. Jesus Christ must dwell in us. He must be the major part of our lives, right with the Father. Romans 13, verses 11 through 14 state this, And do this, knowing the time that now it is a high time to awake out of sleep. For now, our salvation is nearer 
than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Putting on the armor of light, putting on Christ, provides spiritual protection that is also conducive to producing the fruit of the Spirit. To cast off the works of darkness completely, as Paul admonished in verse 12 of Romans chapter 13. It is a long, tough struggle beyond the human mind's ability without the help of the Holy Spirit. Thus, we find ourselves continually guarding the truth and resisting the bombardment by Satan in the world to brainwash us, to see little or nothing wrong with fulfilling the lusts of the flesh and of the eyes. The opposition of evil to good determines direction. Good is the pathway or direction toward God and light and life. Evil leads in the opposite direction toward darkness and death. Following these lusts, even occasionally, takes us in the wrong direction, away from God. In his final song, David rejoices that he has kept the ways of the Lord and not wickedly departed from God. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, verses 21 through 25, we read, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanliness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and for his statutes I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyes. Notice that David said, I have not wickedly departed from my God. David did sin, and we know that sin separates us from God. Wickedly could also be translated willfully or intentionally. David did not willfully or intentionally depart from God. His direction was always toward God and away from the world. This is the direction that we must take in our lives. We must come to the point that we find the way of the world despicable and disgusting. I would like to thank James Sunquist for the use of his song titled Harvest Song. I encourage you to check out his musical channel on YouTube. I hope you have been challenged by today's Differing Things podcast. Good day and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast.
anticipating the field hands are leaving their day's chores seem to be done but the brown upturned earth is still Coming to 